Welcome to the HSCT Warriors Podcast, bringing voice to the journeys of HSCT Warriors worldwide. I'm Dr. Jen Stansberry Koenig, or Zen Jen, and so grateful to share this story with you. As we continue to grow the HSCT Warrior community, illuminate the invisibilities of autoimmune disease, recognize the possibilities of a future free from disease progression, connect through our shared experiences, and advocate for an inclusive society. We're so glad you've joined us. Good morning, Dr. Burt. It's so great to connect with you again. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you. So last we spoke, I I wanted to squeeze in some questions, and I appreciate how much you've shared already about the book and your intentions. And some part of the book that I know so many people have questions about, or at least those who are desperate to get to HSCT, might be curious to know more about why you're saying HSCT is not as effective for primary progressive MS or even non-active secondary progressive MS. Well, that's because HSCT, despite its name, hematopoietic stem cell, that is stem cell transplant, it is not a tissue neuroregenerative therapy. Mm. It is an immune reset therapy. So once MS transitions from an immune-mediated inflammatory disease into a neurodegenerative disorder, which is what non-active secondary progressive MS is, uh, this therapy is too late to help it. Now, primary progressive MS, I think up front, is a different disease than relapsing remitting MS. Obviously, its clinical course is different. But uh, it just happens to be called the same thing, multiple sclerosis. Mm. I think primary progressive MS is really a predominantly neurodegenerative disease from onset, whereas relapsing remitting MS, it's not. It's a immune-mediated inflammatory disorder that results, as time goes on, with accumulation of of plaques and demyelination in a neurodegenerative disease. And the reason it results in that is that the neurons are incredibly specialized cells, and some of them will have an axon or a body that goes from the cell nucleus in the brain all the way down to the lumbar sacral region in the spinal cord. And when you think a very, very small microscopic cell can do that, that's an astronomical distance that it mm. travels. And in return for its very specialized functions uh, that give us cognition and uh, you know control of motor function and a lot of other functions in our body, it needs, it sacrifices certain other attributes that cells have, and it needs the support and nourishment of other cells, in, including... Uh, oligodendrocytes that form the myelin around these axons. And so uh, once those are damaged, you can start setting your neurons up if they're damaged significantly enough for an accelerated uh, neurodegenerative process. And so, you know, that's where you end up with late non-active secondary progressive MS. But my concern is that uh, primary progressive from onset is a different disease, that it's uh, 
predominantly neurodegenerative and an immune-based therapy, which is really what HSCT is, that is resetting your immune system back towards tolerance to uh, to myelin epitopes would no longer be effective. And so why put a person through the risk uh, of this treatment if it's not going to help them? You know, if there was absolutely zero risk or inconvenience from this therapy, you know, that you could maybe argue differently until you've collected enough data to publish and confirm it's whether it has any effectiveness or none at all in sure. uh, primary progressive MS. But it, it this there carries a low but real risk of mortality with uh, HSCT. Depending on the regimen you use, it's higher with myeloblative toxicity mortality. But even with non-myeloblatives, you can never make that risk zero. And so that's why you know, all what all medications, all treatments, all surgeries have early and late complications. Um, you know, so you you always have to weigh risk benefit. And um, you, you know, I personally would be uncomfortable with that risk when I strongly believe there'd be no benefit. And I think the converse could be said that. You know, it could be easy to argue that people that do that are either being kind of naive or that they're then would be taking advantage of patients for their money without being able to help them. So I think pretty much anybody that has experience doing HSCT for uh, MS will not do primary progressive or late secondary progressive MS. In the early days, they did before people figured that out. So, um, you know, I, I figured that out very early. My very first paper of 10 patients have been the title failure for late secondary progressive mm. MS because I wanted people to understand that. And in the early days, you know, you had to start there. Uh, you know, we were, um, I had animal data that it worked in relapsing emitting EAE and animal model for MS, but not in chronic EAE, which is like secondary progressive MS, but nevertheless, because nobody had ever done this in terms of the risk benefit, mm. you know, we were restricted to starting with secondary progressive. And that really followed the animal model. You know, it just doesn't benefit those patients. Um, I mean, you know, there's a subset if their EDSS is less than six that didn't show for the progression of the EDSS over several years, and you could argue maybe it stabilized them, but I, uh, that would require a gigantic study, and uh, Absolutely. You know, it just didn't interest me. And, and those over six, many of them continued to progress after the procedure. So it's, you know, MS, even relapsing remitting, I think is a little heterogeneous. Obviously, it's clinically heterogeneous. Some people have very explosive disease. Others are very mild, um, you know, where they have very few attacks during their life. Uh, some, you know, have multiple lesions in MRI despite limited disability. Of course, that depends where the lesions are, but you can mm. be surprised by that. Others have not so many lesions and a lot of disability. So even relapsing remitting is a spectrum of uh, or variations, at least uh, in its clinical presentation, whether they're variations in the underlying pathophysiology isn't clear. But there, I think as time goes on and more research is done, these will eventually be better clarified. For instance, it used to be considered that neuromyelitis optica, also called Devix, was just a type of MS. And it does cause demyelination. And when it first starts, it's predominantly in the spinal cord and in the optic nerves. 
uh, with sparing of the brain, which makes it a little bit unusual for uh, MS, although MS involves the optic nerves and the spinal cord. Mm. Um, but the lesions in neuromyelitis optica tend to be confluent over at least three vertebra. That is, they follow the length of the spinal cord for at least three vertebra, whereas MS tends to when it has a lesion confined to the length of one vertebra, if it becomes confluent, it can look like it's three vertebra, but you know, the initial attacks are just the length of one vertebra. And uh, neuromyelitis optica initially didn't show lesions in the brain, but as soon goes on, you often do get lesions in the brain. Um, and so it used to just be considered a type of MS that would present more with uh, spinal lesions and optic neuritis. In fact, the way it was first described was about, I think it was 1894, a French physician Devic, for which it got the name, mm. Eugene Devic was his name, neuromyelitis optica, had a patient come to him with the first attack and uh, within a month had died and an autopsy showed extensive involvement of the spinal cord and optic nerves, but the brain was normal. And so, you know, he wrote it up in his neuromyelitis optica uh, and um you know, his name Devix got associated with that. And then for 100 years, people argued that it's just a type of MS and was considered MS. But over time, that's been teased out because an antibody to astrocytes, not to, to oligodendrocytes, not to neurons, but to astrocytes, uh, was found to cause the disease. And that's an antibody to aquaporin 4, uh, whereas you don't see those in MS at all. So... It's a it's a much rarer disease in MS. MS is about one in a thousand uh, in people of European heritage, but MS is relatively common in in the Middle East too. I've I've learned, uh, but the uh, neuromyelitis optica is about one in a hundred thousand. So it's 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 less common, but uh, and it does respond to transplant, but we have to use a different regimen than we use for MS. So. I, you know, going back to your question, I think that primary progressive is a different uh, disease than MS. It just happens to be called primary progressive MS. Uh, yeah, so that's, and I don't think a stem, a immune-based or immune regenerative therapy would be beneficial. If someone ever proved me wrong, that would be great. Right. But, but I don't think that would be the case. And I don't want to put patients through the risk of this therapy if I can't help them. Sure. No, and I now, so it, it, appreciate it, it, you taking the chance on me as I transition to secondary progressive between my first evaluation and insurance approved me and then changed their mind. And so then six months later, I thought, well, let's go again for an evaluation to just help make the proof that I'm getting worse. And I need this as a medical necessity, right? That it's, I need this more than ever. And Sure enough, six months later, I did not have active lesions, and we were you were afraid that I was transitioning to secondary progressive and that within a year this may not help me. And I'm just beyond grateful that you took the chance that it would help because I believe that it has. Well, yes, I think we can still help people with active secondary progressive, mm -hmm. that is new lesions or an active enhancing lesion within the last year. But obviously, once you get to non-active secondary progressive illness, then I, I don't, I wouldn't offer the therapy. Ideally, of course, you want to get people before they get there. Yes. Uh, obviously, we have to fight with the insurance companies to get this to happen. And in your case, there was that long delay, before, you know, to to work that process through. 
uh, and I'll leave that up to you if you want to tell your readers. But um, um, you know, it's it's um, one of those things you have to do that's different than what most doctors do. So when we, you know, most doctors don't write and submit and take the time no. for for their submitting to insurance companies uh, and then going through all the appeal processes and it's quite a bit of time and effort for which there's never any reimbursement but you do it because you want to try to get the best therapy for your patients and you know it can uh, be a time-consuming uh, process uh, almost at times like writing a grant and that Indeed. you know the result is uh, whether the you know, the funding shows up mm. uh, is never in your hands, but it's the process we have. And so, you know, we work with it to try to get the best we can for the patient. And so going back to what you just mentioned about the antibodies related to NMO, neuromyelitis optica, I'm just beyond impressed, continually impressed with how much you know as an immunologist by training about these neurological conditions, and I'm grateful for your dedication to that research. So if we think about the latest research out of Harvard that Epstein-Barr virus can cause or trigger the body to develop multiple sclerosis, what do we know now about Epstein-Barr as it relates to the antibodies? You mentioned this briefly in your book, right, that some of the more harsh regimens or myeloablative regimens can trigger that Epstein-Barr virus antibody reactivation. And I know that that was the case for the first patient treated on the BDMS trial at Cleveland Clinic, that there were a few weeks there that the fever was super high and the antibody levels were 500 times what they should have been. Maybe talk a little bit about those risks with myeloablative and why reactivation of Epstein-Barr can be such a challenge. Well, you know, there have been intermittent reports through the decades of different viruses uh, being triggers for MS, and they kind of um, have their period of interest, then it kind of falls off mm. uh, and then recurs later with a different virus or uh, re-interest in a particular virus. They're, they're often herpes-related viruses, and Epstein-Barr is within the herpes family, but other there's also been this concern with other herpes viruses. Um, and that's not been my, you know, there's no definitive answer to the involvement of virus in, in MS, and that's been not been my particular area of research. I did do research in an animal model of Tyler's murine encephalitic virus, which causes a disease that mimics MS. It actually mimics primary progressive MS, not mm. relapsing remitting, in an animal model. And, uh, um, you know, that attacking the virus in the central nervous system and the inflammation of the response to that attack causes the presentation of some myelin proteins to the immune system in an inflammatory state. And so that can activate, that can remove tolerance and activate the immune system against myelin proteins. And that uh, once activated against one myelin protein and the attack starts on that protein, it can spread to other myelin proteins and that's called epitope spreading. So yeah, viruses have a potential kind of a, a bystander potential by activating the immune system to, if there's damage to other tissue within the area, to activate the immune system to, to self-peptides. Uh, it's one of the things, like when we would cause MS in animal models, 
you know, we could use a virus, TMEV, that would cause the disease looks like primary progressive MS, or we could uh, use just myelin peptides by themselves. But mm. if you inject those peptides, absolutely nothing happens. If you inject them with an adjuvant that is something that stimulates the immune system, you could trigger the immune system to cross over and attack myelin and start a disease called EAE that mimics MS. And that adjuvant that you use could be complete Freud's adjuvant, which is, you know, kind of dead mycobacterium, or it could be any of the normal vaccines that people are given, measles, mumps, rubella, tetanus, they would all activate the immune system and could lead if there's uh, myelin peptides it co-injected with it then to the development of MS. So it doesn't surprise me at all that viruses could play a role, but the definitive role of a given virus for MS, I don't think has been absolutely clarified. Coxsackie virus for uh, type 1 diabetes is probably a better example, and that one's more closely uh, associated with onset of type 1 <clears throat> diabetes in, in children. So, you know, it's kind of understanding how the immune system responds to self-peptides. And it used to be in the old days thought that during development of your immune cells from the hematopoietic stem cell would have to start differentiating towards different immune cells. But saying the development of T cells, the way it makes a T cell receptor is it randomly rearranges these different genes and it can comes up it can develop millions and millions of different receptors on the T cell. The problem is that random rearrangement in the development of the T cell will develop receptors that recognize self-epitopes or self-tissue or self-antigen. And it used to be thought in the development of the thymus, if it bound self, it would die so these self-reactive T cells don't get in the periphery. And that's only partially true. It's then subsequently realized that it has to bind self to get into the periphery, but it has to bind itself in a weak to moderate manner. If it binds it more intestinally, it still survives but becomes a T regulatory cell to downregulate immune response. If it binds it super strong, it dies and may right, probably good that it does so it isn't too autoreactive. But your T cells are all potentially autoreactive, but they're energic to self. But that means they have the potential, given the right co-stimulatory signals and the right inflammatory environment, to cross-react if the epitope is there to self. In fact, that's really the reverse of that is how transplant works. If mm. you knock down your immune cells, get rid of enough of the self-reactive ones, and stop the inflammatory process, the regeneration of your immune cells will default towards tolerance. Uh, with uh, T regulatory cells that help maintain that tolerance. So, and uh, I'm sure with time that will be elucidated even further, uh, you know, how that mechanism actually works. But that's really how this works. It's kind of the reverse of immunization. It's just quieting down your immune system, getting rid of a significant number of autoreactive cells and allowing the regeneration of cells that have the potential to react to self but do so in a non-inflammatory environment and that resets tolerance uh, including the development of the t-reg cells that <clears throat> have a higher avidity for self-epitopes but but help maintain tolerance and i think one of the advances further in, in transplant 
for autoimmune diseases would be to see if there's something you can do to the uh, regenerating immune system to help push the production of more Tbreg cells or that is more uh, uh, cells that help maintain remission uh, and help shut down any potentially activated uh, cell once it becomes activated towards self. But um, that's kind of a theoretical future. There are people that work on Tbreg cells for that reason. And I mentioned that in my academic textbook, uh, which came out in November 2021. We have a really great chapter on Tbreg cells by a professor in London uh, and their potential role, you know, uh, so and their limitations currently. There's still a lot to be learned. Um, so um, going back to your question, though, the intensity of the regimen does determine reactivation and risks of viruses subsequently. Uh, and, you know, Epstein-Barr virus has never really been a concern for us when using a non-myeloblative mm -hmm. regimen. But you can use non-myeloblative regimens that are just as intense or even more intense on the removing your immune system than a myeloablative one. And actually, there are people who use a non-myeloblative regimen of cytoxin ATG, but they increase the dose of ATG to around 7.5 milligrams per kilogram. And once you go above 6.5 milligrams per kilogram with ATG, you start running into the risk of reactivation and disease associated with Epstein-Barr mm. virus that you don't see when you keep the dose around, you, know, you cap the dose at six. Um, the other thing they do is CD34 select, which, it, you know, is purifying the graft and may also contribute a little bit to that. But those are the two reasons why, you know, when you, you have to, when you look at the at the treatment for MS, there are all these different drugs, disease-modifying therapies, and people know natalizumab is different than Lamtrada, that's different than Copaxone in terms of efficacy and toxicity. For, for instance, natalizumab is the biggest risk for the virus progressive multifocal leukemia that causes progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, that is the JC virus. Other drugs have a very low risk. It has been rarely associated with Alcrevis or Gelenia, but it's very rare you know, developing that disease, uh, unlike natalizumab. Uh, it's really unheard of when you use Copaxone or interferon. So it's the same with conditioning regimes. Mm. Unfortunately, when people think of transplant, they think of just this monolithic block called mm -hmm. transplant. But no, it depends entirely on your conditioning regimen. And the first way you can break that conditioning regimen down is whether it's myeloablative or non-myeloablative. But then even within that subset, there's different levels of risk and risk of viral reactivation. And certainly when you use a very intense regimen or even a non-myeloablative with ATG dose over 6.5, you uh, run the risk of, uh, of reactivating Epstein-Barr virus and having uh, complications associated with that, including um, uh, PTLD, post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder. So, um, yeah, the, 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 the regimens can absolutely be associated with different risks of toxicity and uh, virus-related infections.
Thank you for And it's one of the reasons I've always argued mm -hmm. for the safer non-myeloablative, but within the non-myeloablative, I've argued to the community to cut that ATG dose back to less than 6.5, and that CD34 selection is not necessary. And I think that message finally starting to resonate with mm. those who have used the higher cytoxin ATG regimen, and they are, I think, in the process of uh, reducing that. Wonderful. So do you think that virus might be a factor in triggering relapses for people who have been through HSCT? Yeah, I don't have an answer to that. And I haven't personally seen that in patients. Uh, fortunately, the majority don't relapse, but in those that mm -hmm. have relapsed, I haven't noticed an antecedent viral infection as the precipitating cause. Well, that's good to know. I'm just always curious. I think a lot of people are curious how that relapse might occur and understanding might help resolve some of the anxiety around even at five years post-transplant I still if I get sick right I'm thinking oh my gosh is my MS coming back have I relapsed well it is clear when you have a infection that you can get a pseudo flare a recurrence of the symptoms but it's not associated with recurrence of MS and as the infection goes away the pseudo flare results there's no new lesions or activity in MRI and you continue to do well. But, you know, once the central nervous system has been damaged, it's more prone to re-manifesting those symptoms when you're under stress, whether especially an infection, but also even, you know, intense uh, stress from employment or marital stress or whatever, mm -hmm. interrelationship stress. Uh, and that that's, happens with other types of damage to the central nervous system. Even if you talk to patients who've had uh, slipped discs with pressure on the, the nerves coming off the spinal cord and then finally go to surgery and they get relief, you know, it's not unusual with stressful situations for that back pain to act back up just like a slipped disc. And, you know, they have to go to bed rest and stuff. And when the stressful situation resolves, uh, they go back to where they were, uh, you know, before without that type of uh, ridiculous pain from a, from the prior herniated disc. So the central nervous system, once damaged, no matter where it is, can is is prone to under uh, different types of stress or infections to remanifest similar symptoms that do resolve once the the uh, stressor or infection results. Thank you for clarifying. I hope that brings some peace of mind to our listeners. And so many of the people I interview, I like to ask a question about superpower that they've gained through their experience with HSCT. So some people point to increased patience or resilience, tenacity, increased sense of empathy. All of those things seem to already be part of who you are. But I would love to ask you if there's a superpower you've gained in your experience with HSCT. <laughs> That's great. I wish that was true. If it was true, many more doctors would be doing this. It's more like getting the UFC ring and getting pounded on, mm. uh, despite doing a lot of good. And, and uh, you know, it takes a lot of perseverance. And, and uh, yeah, you, you do get fatigued from... Uh, working that hard and dealing with uh, all the uh, misinformation that occurs out there. What I have learned is that, you know, I mean, I'm obviously a professor and I love learning and 
uh, teaching, but um, and information is valuable. But limited information is very dangerous because people take that and they twist it in ways, and it really is unfortunate. And so you get limited information because you're not doing the work yourself. That's where you get the most information by designing the protocol, studying the disease, and doing the treatment and sitting at the bedside 24-7. Then you live it. Then you know. And when you do that, and then you see how other people you know, no matter who they are, including doctors, get up and talk about it, who don't actually live it or don't even necessarily do it, you're like, whoa, you know, no wonder things are so confused out mm. there. Uh, so, you know, part of the process is trying to educate people about how this works and the risk benefits and, and so forth. But um, um, there is develop just tremendous misinformation out there that's kind of destructive because people often the first thing they hear they tend to latch to it and stay to it and it's hard to get it's kind of that first effect and it's hard to get people to open their minds to rethink it so um, um, it's maybe one of the things that have hindered the development of this field people are taught in a particular way and so you know once they hear the word hsct they they don't really understand what it's about but yet they'll convey a lot of information and they'll have different degrees behind their names to do that which would imply they're an expert but no they're not they actually didn't develop they don't sit at the bedside they're not taking care of those patients and they're in and they can then unintentionally uh, cause the distribution of a lot of misinformation and so you know you get tired of that. You get exhausted seeing that over and over. Uh, and in fact, I've kind of decided, you know, after all my publications and my major medical textbook last year in this lay book, you know, if this doesn't help change things in this country to make it more accessible for patients, and uh, then I've probably done all I can do. Mm. You know, the, the system is kind of this gigantic bureaucratic structure that marches forward on its own and the patient's gotten lost in that structure uh you know the system is developed for the patient but it's not patient-centric anymore and what you need are physicians that are patient-centric and that patient is first and i bring that out in the last chapter uh especially in the last chapter where i talk about uh, financial toxicity so you know the, hopefully this will but that's going to require some subtle changes in the medical system itself, which is kind of beyond my authority to do. It's more of a societal thing and legislative thing. And so in a kind of a redirection of uh, how doctors are trained and think, uh, because it is patients would say to me, why don't people stand on rooftops screaming about this? And, uh, you know, I didn't really have a good answer for that. I kind of kind of didn't understand that myself. And from being in the in the ring all this time and you know you kind of get tired of knowing what you're doing is the right thing but getting beat on so um it, it is actually surprising to see these kind of responses in this disease and yet a failure of the community including the academic community to embrace it uh so you know i bring out in the last part of the book the last chapter what you know why i can't get hsct 
and uh, it's not critical of any one person. I don't believe in any way that any one person or entity is intentionally trying to harm a patient. I think it's quite the opposite. I just think it's limited information and set ways of thinking, and then a, the, the way the structure feeds on itself our medical healthcare system, and it, you know, needs to be re-emphasized and tweaked to make it patient-centric uh, instead of just expanding itself. Uh, so hopefully, you know, there's several levels to this book, Everyday Miracles, and I, I hope, you know, that people understand, understand those different levels. One of the levels is just understanding these diseases, which another level is, is the patients and their tremendous courage and fortitude and the human spirit to persist and survive uh, and to try to find a way when you're being told it's a chronic disease and, you know, basically you're stuck with it and <clears throat> so there's another level and that is the inherent problems that have occurred within our medical system that need to be tweaked to make our medical system advanced accountable affordable and all-inclusive and you know medicine is a profession but healthcare is a business and that's where conflicts can arise and you really do need an independent physician who's not an employee of a hospital or an institution to represent you through that healthcare business, not just in terms of medical, which they currently do, but in terms of financial. And, uh, um, you know, that is not being done. Doctors have absolutely no clue about charges to patients. Uh, and um, at the end of the year, they're given a bonus if they exceed their expected billing. And if they don't, you know, they get penalized by you know, uh, various psychological pressures or taboos, uh, you know, kind of almost like putting a, a scarlet letter around mm. their neck and uh, then less, you know, revenue for the next year. And, you know, that shouldn't be. It should be focusing on doing the best for your patient. And if, uh, you know, you're not concerned about the financial health of your patient, if there's financial insecurity, whether it's for the patient or the society, the medical and psychological health of your patient will also suffer. So, you know, obviously, if you take a chronic disease, it's being treated with these extremely expensive drugs. And I point out the cost of the drugs when they're first approved by the FDA and their current cost in 2020, and it's astronomical shift going from the original Copaxins interferon that are about nine to 12,000 a year to, you know, $100,000 a year. That's matching the development of the new drugs. They're all running kind of the same price. So a transplant using the regimen I do non-myeloblative would be paid off after one year and then you're free of the drugs and it's done something the drugs haven't done. It's reversed neurologic disability by one to two points and uh, it's improved quality of life. And the majority, 75%, have remained free of recurrence of MS, uh, not just relapses, but progression. So, you know, that you would think would be welcomed in the community, mm. but it's it kind of hasn't been. And it's kind of been a, a fight to get the community to understand that. And that includes some patient support groups, the, the traditional ones that uh, have been lag in, very far behind in recognizing or supporting this. And again, I think it's because they've moved away from being patient-centric mm -hmm. and uh, large structures do that, yet the development of those structures was originally to help the patient in front of them and often the larger the structure the more money involved the more 
they become self-invested in continuing their cycle and that that patient kind of gets lost so you need a physician that's patient-centric and they can't be if they're an employee of a hospital or whatever because they have their own different structure and interests to allow those gears to expand and they they live off the revenue brought in by that patient care so you need a doctor that can fight that without risk of losing their or suffering some disadvantage for standing up for the patient and um uh, you know it's kind of like if you need a lawyer but the lawyer works for the judge or works for the district attorney that's prosecuting you you're not going to get the best lawyer because he's compromised and it's the same this way you need to to have doctors that are not employed by hospitals or large organizations whose primary focus is you because they have the knowledge but they're they're totally excluded from understanding charges and billing and part of that requires then that uh, medical journals, you know, they normally will publish phase one, phase two, phase three, phase three being randomized trial, but they don't publish cost effectiveness. There's never a phase four, what's the cost effectiveness of this? That is the cost for this and the benefits versus other types of therapies. So people don't know, they're unaware. And I bring it out in neuromyelitis optica, I bring it out in in, uh, MS as well in those chapters. But for example, neuromyelitis optica, in 2019, the first drug was FDA approved for neuromyelitis optica. It's echolizumab. It costs three quarter of a million dollars mm. a year, and you have to stay on it forever because it doesn't get rid of the or affect in any way the antibody that causes the disease, the aquaporin four antibody. What it does is block activation of complement by that antibody. It's the complement that destroys the cells and causes the attacks. But you can still get attacks; they're just less frequent. Uh, mm. But you kind of just stay on it forever, whereas the transplant I showed, although it was a small number of patients, you know, phase kind of one study, we did show that the majority, 80%, mm. became negative for the antibody. And if they became negative for the antibody, they hadn't relapsed over five years. And the patients I reported in neuromyelitis optica were beyond 10 years without mm-hmm. a relapse or any treatment. So if you, the transplant, the regimens have to be specific for each disease. The regimen for neuromyelitis optica is different. For MS, it's a little more expensive, 125000 But, you know, you could do five transplants in one year for the cost of right. one year of neuromyelitis optica, but nobody's aware of it. Mm. And it really then, you know, whether it's the insurance company or the or government paying for it, it's still the society as a whole, and it's not sustainable, and I call that financial toxicity, and it's not unique to neurology. I've seen it repeatedly throughout all fields of medicine, and it's because doctors have absolutely no training in cost effectiveness or the cost for their patients, and especially when they're employees, they don't even know what those books show. Uh, they're just pushed to, to increase RVUs, which is revenue built. So, you know, the which is functioning to support the system over the patient. And that's why I try to bring out we need to become more patient-centric. And that's where medicine really started. But that's going to require some societal changes in the structure of medicine that go beyond me. And so those there's several levels to this book that I wrote. And you, you know, may have to read it a few times to pick up on those different levels. But of course, one of the obvious ones is here's patients that are just continuing to get worse in these drugs. A system that has fought against them independently on their own, they came for transplant and they've gotten so much better doing well uh, without any drugs for 
now very long periods of time. And some of the patients I just randomly contacted 20, 15, 10 years out, still in remission, doing well. So again, there's no definition of cures for this disease because nobody's ever had the luxury to define that. But uh, um, it does change the natural history of the disease. And if there is a definition of cure, perhaps the best would be in those few for which we have antibodies such as NMO uh, and transplants, the only thing that's ever shown in disappearance of those antibodies. Uh, as a caveat, you also have to check for the ability of those antibodies to kill cells uh, that is actively a complement, but you know that gets into details not necessary here. Actually, in MS, if there is a pseudo a, a diagnostic marker for disease, and I'm not sure it is, I'm not sure at all that it is, but you could maybe make an argument that it's the algoclonal glands in the CSF fluid. And um, the people in Sweden who were part of my mistrial actually did a little extension to it where they would do follow-up lumbar punctures to look at those oligoclonal mm. bands. And they found that by about eight years after transplant, you know, the patients go in remission, stay in remission, but they still have those oligoclonal bands. And then about eight years after transplant, they totally disappear. Wow. So, you know, there can be a delay for them to go away, but they went away. So, you know, they did publish that, but it's kind of, you know, a lot of people don't recognize or know that. In fact, I didn't even put it in my laybook because then it would talk about, I would require to talk a little more about the basic immunology of things, which, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to go into. I wanted this to be a book that's uh, understood by the lay public sure. and that they would enjoy reading more of a kind of humanities type of book. And in fact, I enjoyed writing mm. it that way. It took me back to my college days because I've been so tied up having to write in a right, medical, medical publications. Yeah. Right. Which it's important to write them that way, but you know, they're loaded with statistical analysis and they can put you to sleep if you're not really into understanding and, and doing that. So, um, you know, I wanted to get this out to the lay public and, and write it from, you know, patient's perspective as well as how this field was developed by me um and uh you know which is another level to this book so hopefully the key is that people read this i think it will have an impact but people need to read it you know unfortunately i don't have the name of a famous uh, movie star or politician mm -hmm. which people would then want to read but you know they don't have the knowledge or expertise to to develop something like this or to do it but you know all i can do is get the information out there and then let the cards fall the way they will. But the purpose of this laybook is to empower the patient and their family and their loved ones. Um, you know, and then they can go to the neurologist and say, see, read this. A neurologist say, oh, well, this is science fiction, but then they can hand them my medical textbook that came out a year ago or, or my website that I set up so this information is disseminated to patients, uh, astemcelljourney.com, so patients can can have access to that as well as, as physicians, you know, because it's almost ludicrous that you can have a, a therapy like this that can have such tremendous benefit. And yet it is so hard to even be made aware of it or to access it. It is ludicrous indeed. Some people have just said awful things about this that mm -hmm. are completely wrong. And, um, you know, you, you just have to kind of, wonder, you know, I think whether there's other agendas that they have or just uh, limited information. 
and so that's that's the goal here is to you know think that people's intentions are generally good but the information's limited and that's you know one of the reasons i wanted to get this laybook out as well as the medical textbook and hopefully those will do more than all the medical publications and clinical trials have done because you know they they don't seem to have changed the field as as they should have or made this more assess, accessible to patients and after a while after decades i i get tired of being in the UFC ring. Yeah. So it's not, it's not a superpower. It's an exhaustion. <laughs> I wish it was a superpower. Oh, I heard so many superpowers embedded in your response, right? So, I mean, just your vast knowledge in general is a superpower. Being patient-centric and really caring about that improvement and quality of life, to have that as a focus is clearly unique in the field of medicine, which is unfortunate and ludicrous. Um, facilitating clarity through education. I mean, you've been devoted to that, it seems, your whole life, if not career. Um, but I think when you identified the patients evidencing fortitude in human spirit, I'd say if I could declare you having a superpower, that would be, I think... Although you see it in your patients, I see it in you. And I'm beyond grateful for that. I just truly am so grateful for you and and your dedication to this research and to your patients and being at our bedsides because I know that that's true. And if anyone were to ever doubt that, I just can't imagine uh, why. I vividly remember even a conversation we had on a Sunday morning where you walked in and I was working on a laptop and you said, oh, are you scrolling Facebook? And I said, no, no, I'm working on a grant application. (laughs) And so we bonded over the grant process, but you shared a story of growing up in Montana where my sister lives. And so I'm just, I'm ever grateful for our connection. And I hope more people can enjoy a sense of that connection just in reading your book because you're humanity and human spirit truly come through. It's it's a genuine book and I appreciate you taking the time to make that available and accessible to patients. Well, thank you. Thank you. I think my only other question for you, which is a way I love to end my podcast episodes, is to ask if there's anything else you're grateful for about your experience with HSCT that has maybe gone unspoken. Well, I guess the number one is, you know, when I started this, it's just an idea in my mind that didn't exist in reality. And to, so to see it come true in reality and to change other people's lives and to see results that I always wished for, but, you know, you don't know until you actually do it. That is a really great experience to have an idea change the world, to realize that what's in the mind can actually change the structure of the world around you. Mm. Um, that is a, a, something great. I remember a friend of mine once told me, he's very intelligent, uh, very well educated, but he said he felt like an ant on a leaf in a river stream just being tossed around with no control over mm. anything. And I think a lot of people kind of go through life being buffeted by the external environment like that. But if you have an idea and you can actually change that stream you're on, 
with that idea, you realize, wow, you know, an, an idea can change reality. It's a lot of work and you pay a price to do it, but it, it can be done. And that, that has been very rewarding then to see how this has affected people and fundamentally changed their lives. And by changing the lives of those people, you, you change the lives of the, of the people that they interact with. So that's been great. The other great thing is that they're, you know, you do run into bad people with bad intentions, but you run into plenty of good people with good intentions. And there are good people who have helped me out there. Uh, and I'm, you know, very grateful for them. And then finally, very grateful for my family because they paid a tremendous price mm. in my absence for this. And so, um, you know, there are uh, families that wouldn't, uh, individuals that wouldn't tolerate that, but, uh, you know, they paid that price for me to be able to do this. So all those things I am grateful for and impressed by, but whenever I've realized, whenever there's a great high, there's also a great low. Uh, and it's just something you have to deal with. It's kind of like, you know, if you play it safe and you're just always kind of steady, you never experience those great highs. You never get to change the world. But if you take those risks and you do that, there are also great lows. There's kind of for reaction, there's a, a counter reaction. And so you really learn to be grateful for those people that are true friends or family that really always want to be there for you. So uh, I think, you know, it, it's made a life worth living and that's what i tell students i i always tell them i say you know don't do necessarily what other people tell you to do follow your own passion because it's your life and you have one life and at the end of the day if you follow your passion whether you win or lose it's fulfilled who you are it's made your life worth living and that also means to think for yourself. And I try to bring that out in the book. That's another level to this, that education, and I'm all for it, but it, it can be put blinders on you to think a certain way. And what that's not really what thinking is. Thinking means rethinking concepts mm -hmm. and questioning them, uh, not in a bad way, but in a good way, uh, to always trying to find you know, the best way to do things or, you know, how things really work or what the real truth is, not just to accept the dogma. Unfortunately, there's a greater tendency in our academic system that here's the dogma, take it and stay with it. And then you get these blinders on. No, the, you know, science is repeating the research. It's researching. It's questioning the dogma. Uh, and in the old days, I think science questioned the dogma of religion. But what science is now failing to do is question its own dogma. And, uh, you know, they, that's what science really should be. And that's how should, people should be trained to think, not to be taught how they should think, but trained to think, to question dogma as it, and to, to re-question it. Not in any mean way, but in, in, in to, to retest it, you know, to, and by doing the, the experiments or the tests yourself is how you learn. Because as information is just shared beyond that, information is lost. Uh, even when I write a medical paper of the original research, there's a lot of 
information there. But in writing that paper, it has to be condensed and mm -hmm. certain information is lost. And then when someone reads it, they lose a certain extent of the information and on and on and on. So, you know, it's it's really the importance of doing it yourself to get the best understanding of what the actual real knowledge is. And I think that's being lost. People are being just uh, in education spoon fed and take it this way. No, you know, it's important to do the research yourself. And that's where the real knowledge lies. And in questioning the dogma in the academic community, and you're not taught to do that anymore in, uh, in uh, academia. And, and it's kind of losing itself that way. Mm. Such an inspiration. So much there to unpack and carry forward, I think, for anyone who's listening and seeking their own capacity to become their own self-advocate and question and challenge and dissent from that dogma to gain a better understanding about their options for treatment. And may, may HSCT become more considered as a treatment for autoimmune diseases. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Burt. I really appreciate your time and sharing and dedication to being so patient-centric and evidencing for everyone just your integrity and your fortitude of human spirit that I'm going to say is a gold standard for, for life to achieve. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Take good care of yourself. All the best to you in health and wellness and a lovely retirement. Enjoy every minute of it. Oh, no, I haven't I know retired. you're still, well, you retired from teaching. <laughs> well, no, not really. I'm, you know, I'm seeing patients at Scripps, and I'm also developing a new IPS technology, which is a whole other different field. So, oh, and that's a whole other podcast I would love to yeah, have with down, you. Down the line, that would be another podcast. You're right. I'm, I'm But no, patients... You can see me at Scripps, and they can still get these transplants there. Right. Not retired. Still dedicated. Right. <laughs> Grateful to you. Enjoy right. a tremendous rest of the day and weekend. Okay. You too. Take good care. Bye-bye. Be sure to visit hsctwarriorspodcast.org where you can find notes from today's episode, submit ideas or feedback, and connect with resources and the HSCT Warriors Incorporated nonprofit. As always, special thanks to musical genius Billy Alitzhauser for sharing his superpowers to create, soundtrack, edit, and produce the audio to make this podcast possible. You can find us both when you subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find podcasts. It has been amazing to connect with warriors worldwide, and we would love to hear from you about how the podcast has helped your journey with autoimmune disease. Take a moment to connect with us on Instagram or share this episode with someone you know that would enjoy listening. In the meantime, we hope you'll tune in next Wednesday for another episode highlighting another HSCT warrior. Until then, be a snowflake and embrace your superpowers. Be kind. Well, Jen Stansberry Koenig and the producers disclaim medical influence and responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. 
If you think you have a medical problem, please contact a licensed physician and take good care of